0: And welcome to The History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 52 of The History Hotline. My name is Deanna Lynn Cook and I am your host today. If you are back, welcome back. And if this is your first episode, then welcome to The History Hotline. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now episode 52 is entitled the Caribbean's contribution to World War One, And you might be thinking, okay, what's that going to be about? Well, obviously, it's going to be about war in the Caribbean. But in what context? Because we often think about war as, you know, the sacrifice people made um, in giving their lives, in fighting as servicemen and women. But we don't often think about the financial contributions that are given by actual nations. And did we know that nations around the world financially funded world war 1 and 2 but we're only talking about world war 1 today but we're going to get into what that contribution actually looked like what those numbers were what sacrifices especially those in caribbean islands it's not to say it was just the caribbean but i did want to focus on the caribbean today um what they actually gave outside of men and women and i think it's an important one to do because you know it is. I am recording this episode um, a few days before um, the eleventh of November, um, which is where we remember World War One, um, as it is the anniversary of its end, and is used to commemorate armistice. Um, and uh, normally at eleven a.m. on the eleventh hour. So yeah, eleven a.m. of the eleventh month, November, the eleventh day. Really butchered that, didn't I? Um, On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, um, a minute or two minute silence is normally observed um, to commemorate the war. Now, I think I have my own personal feelings, thoughts on war more generally, um, and especially historic wars, but I do also think it's important to remember those who contributed um, and I've done episodes in the past about individual people or regiments, so so please feel free to go back and listen to them. Episode 12, which I think was recorded like this time last year, I think I was only on episode 12 then, um, Lest We Forget, and that was about, I think, three particular servicemen who had fought um, and been part of the war effort. Uh, episode 13, which was Racism as Riot, um, 1919, which looked at the riots that were happening in port cities following World War One. Um, with the seamen that had recently been, you know, not unemployed, but the war was over and their, their jobs were kind of redundant now. Um, and they were looking for work at sea, but struggling as unemployment in those regions were high, and so was racism and racial tensions. Um, and then episode 37, Caribbean Women at War, which looks at the role of women in the auxiliary, auxiliary territorial service in World War II, which is what my first dissertation chapter was on. For my master's dissertation, um, and one of my favourite episodes because I knew how in depth that research I had conducted was, and um, just was happy to share that um, on the podcast. So there's three episodes already about war. For someone that doesn't really like war, I talk about it a lot. You might be thinking, but today we're going to look away from you know the people so much, um, and we're going to think about the actual financial contributions, and also actually. How then is it best for us to remember these people that aren't often remembered by the mainstream um, and the sacrifice and contribution made by black people, um, Pacific Islanders, African people, Caribbean people um, who might not identify as black um, due to obviously different ethnicities. But how do we remember those people uh, when the mainstream does such a terrible job at doing so or has done? Um, I think it's getting better, but. You know, there's always room for improvement, I think, when it comes to actually remembering the diverse contribution made by the world in this world war. So for the most part, the information I'm using today is taken from the Imperial War Museum um, and their kind of information sites, as well as others, about the uh, First World War and the contribution made by the West Indies. Now, just for context, um, Britain declared war against Germany in 1914. Um, And Britain also at this time had a massively large empire, which I'm sure you're aware of, Um, more so, and it was larger than it would have been at the start of World War II, 1939. So that meant that every fourth person on earth owed allegiance, um, and I use that term very loosely, to the British crown. They would have been British subjects at that time. So by Britain declaring war on Germany in 1914, actually meant that they were pulling around a quarter of the population into a global conflict at that time and i think that's quite astounding considering that britain is literally a tiny island and at that point the population wouldn't have even been as huge as it is now um and the fact that they were pulling in so many people um it was clear that britain were not even an advantage, it's a weird way to look at it with war. I don't think anyone is advantaged in war if people are dying, but the fact that they had, I guess, the global backing of so many nations um, going into this war in comparison to Germany um, is quite an interesting one, I think, and I wonder how aware Britain's, you know, government at the time and those um, people in charge were kind of of the fact that they had the disposal of the empire at their hands and if they, if they kind of felt they could rely on, on those across the empire. So when war actually breaks out uh, in 1914, most of the British colonies, especially in the West Indies, were very quick to support the war effort. Um, and that was in Men, Money and Materials. That would have been a really good title for this episode. Men, Money and Materials. But it wasn't just men. So no, actually, it wouldn't be a good title the ratio of black women and Caribbean women from war efforts is not something that I like. Um, please listen to Caribbean Women at War if <laughs> you also don't like this. But um, yeah, you know, for the sake of the little catchy slogan, men, money and materials. So we're thinking about the people sent, but also the money and the uh, equipment and, and things like that. So at the time of World War One, King George V is the monarch, so it's for king and country, not queen and country, um, which people say now, but even during World War Two, actually, um, it was would have been for king and country, because Queen Elizabeth was only 18 at the time, and she was part of the Auxiliary Territorial Service um, at 18 years old, driving a van, I believe, in the war, in the Second World War, so yeah, she wasn't a queen yet. Um, so, for king and country, and I wanted to read out um, a poster, so... Whilst the colonies pledged support, without much encouragement, I will add, from Britain, um, Britain also mounted their campaigns of your country needs you, um, just as they did in Britain. Um, And whilst, you know, we kind of know those posters of, is it Lord Kitchener, who was the British Secretary of State for war, not the Calypsonian that sang when the Windrush arrived, because if someone says to me, Lord Kitchener, I go straight to him. And here's London, is the place for me. Not, um, your country needs you, Lord Kitchener. Secretary of State for war in 1914. Um, that's the whole conversation about how Calypsonians use, like, satire in their names. Um, that could be a whole episode. Not for today, though. Um, my mind is wandering. So back to these war effort posters. You know, you got Lord Kitchener pointing a finger, your country needs you. And similar posters were sent to the Caribbean. So I'm going to read out the text on one that was sent to the Bahamas. It says, big bold letters, young men of the Bahamas, the British Empire is engaged in a life and death struggle. Never in the history of England, never since the misty distant past of 2,000 years ago, has our beloved country been engaged in such a conflict as she is engaged in today. To bring to nothing, this mighty attack by an unscrupulous and well-prepared foe, his most gracious majesty King George, that was in capitals, by the way, his most gracious majesty King George, has called on the men of his empire, his empire, men of every class, creed, and color, capital letters again, so he said, no discrimination here, we'll have you all, um, and in bold, come forward to fight, that the empire may be saved And the foe may be well beaten. This call is to you, young man. Not your neighbour, not your brother, not your cousin, but just you. And the using capital letters. Several hundreds of your mates have come up, have been medically examined and has been passed as fit. Bold again. What is the matter with you? (laughs) And using capital letters. Put yourself right with your king. Put yourself right with your fellow men. Put yourself right with yourself and your conscience and in big capital letters and bold, enlist today. So, my dramatic reading of um, a war effort poster, but you can see that, you know, the rhetoric used in this speech, um, not speech, sorry, in the poster, is very much like putting the blame on the individual person. Like, right, we've got this war happening, now it's up to you to help us win it. It's up to you to serve your country, your king, your fellow men, your... Don't lack, don't kind of rely on other people serving because they've already done that, but we need you as well. Like, they didn't have conscription in the Caribbean islands as they did in Britain. So, if you were a certain age, you had to fight or you had to at least, you know, sign up and be medically examined. If you're fit, you'd go. Um, But that meant actually that in the Caribbean, then people were actually volunteering. There was no force, you know, no one was going to make them. If they didn't want to go, they didn't have to go. But the fact that so many people signed up um, and then were declared fit and went on to fight shows and highlights the fact that, um, you know, they were so willing to, to serve, quote unquote, king and country. Um, now, all of the kind of posters and stuff that I'm talking about today are in the Imperial War Museum. And I believe they they might not have it on right now, but they have in the past had exhibitions about black soldiers um, in the wars. World War 1 and 2 and others, so, you know, if you're about in London, feel free to check that out, or go online, because I'd say, you know, of all the uh, archives and museums out there, Imperial War Museum's online digital content is actually sensational, Um, I'll give them them a clap here. (laughs) Okay, now, here comes the controversy, because as you've heard in that poster, they will accept anyone, whatever class, creed or colour. But that actually didn't mean what you think it means. Because there had to be discrimination. (laughs) Don't let me fool you into thinking there was none. Um, Most of the men that signed up from the West Indies would have wanted to join the front lines um, and prove their worth on the battlefield. You know, that's what your kind of idea of signing up for a war is. Not my personal calling. Um, But at time of war, you know, uh, you want to be a soldier, you want to be that man that's going to save people, I'm sure, maybe that's the psychology, however, Bruins War Office, they didn't really want black men in the army, yeah, you you heard that correctly, they didn't want black men in the army, (laughs) they just, oh, nothing makes sense, Um, but on the personal intervention, actually, of George V, the War Office eventually relented on that stance. Um, it wasn't actually until the third of November, nineteen fifteen, when I think that poster is from. Um, the British West Indies Regiment was established by royal warrant, um, and there was also the West India Regiment, which had actually served Britain since like seventeen ninety five. So that's a whole history of of Caribbean people fighting in wars um, for Britain, seventeen ninety five. Please deep that slavery was still very much legal at that point um so there was a new um regiment the British West Indies Regiment already had the West Indy, India Regiment as well um and so these people these men were initio- eventually allowed to to kind of join the war effort on the battlefield and it's kind of annoying because this whole battle happened again in the Second World War um Dr. Harold Moody was a key kind of advocate for equality on the front lines and, and in in war um, because coloured people were not accepted for service. Um, and the colonial office and the war office were doing it back and back to forth. And, you know, he said, she said for the good first few years of World War Two, which sounds ridiculous when you think there's a big German enemy um, that they are supposed to be actually caring about fighting and using all resources possible. But no, not black people. Anyway... Um, Most people that were recruited in the West Indies, as I've said, volunteered, but also there were leaflets, posters, films, rallies um, to really drum up support um, and to get people to join. There also were incentives, financial incentives. The authorities used financial incentives, tax concessions, and also the fact that wages um, were higher in service than they were for the average civilian job, which unemployment was quite high at the time as well. So if you were lucky enough to have a job, fair enough. But if you weren't, and you knew that these war jobs were going to be more well paid, better paid, sorry, then, you know, what, why wouldn't you? And there were tax incentives. Um, there was also this kind of moral persuasion by churches, um, who kind of would pit the war, pit Britain and Germany as like, Britain being the moral good, and Germany being the moral bad, and you're fighting this moral evil um, by joining the war effort and supporting Britain and fighting Germany, um, as in it was pitched as a battle between good and evil, um, similar to World War Two, which is always very interesting to me when there was so much racism, discrimination in the British Empire, and in the colonies, and on British soil, it just doesn't sit well with me, but what can we do? Um, so yeah, it's very interesting to me, actually, that at first, there was reluctance for Black people to be accepted into battle, and then there was, um, and there was a big push, and it was like, "Please join," and we're going to use this moral panic, and we're going to give financial incentives for you to join, um, and then they ended up joining. Um, so there was, um, as I mentioned, the British West Indies Regiment, um, and a lot of people actually served as volunteers, which is interesting. Not everyone was paid. Um, And the regiment ultimately consisted of 11 battalions, which was a total of 15,600 men. Two-thirds of them came from Jamaica. The remainder came from Barbados, the Bahamas, British Guyana at the time, British Honduras at the time, Grenada, the Leeward Islands, uh, St. Lucia, St. Vincent and Trinidad and Tobago. Um, However, there were military regulations which prevented black West Indian soldiers from holding a rank higher than a warrant officer. Um, Again it just shows colour bars, it shows the glass ceiling, it shows racism, discrimination, it's just given problematic on a very large scale, because as we've said, it's this war that was a fight between good and evil, but we can't even get equality. Okay, so that's enough about people, because I did say we were going to think about actually the money and the materials that the West Indies gave in support, because we already knew that there were servicemen and women, we already knew that you know black people from these countries wanted to join the fight but what about the money now actually before i talk about the money i just want to talk about the actual kind of consensus and maybe a little bit of controversy that would have been in conversations in the west indies at the time now there's an element of and it was again a similar kind of thinking in world war Two that this was a white man's war this is europeans fighting britain germany this is not a war for people in the Caribbean to get involved with. Why should they? Or why should we, as they would have said? You know, why should we be part of this? These white men are killing each other and why should we be involved? And I think they had every right to think that. Um, And it was very, very common for obviously people that weren't, you know, had no intention of signing up or supporting the war effort in the Caribbean to think that. And I I wouldn't just want to kind of tell you or lead you to believe that everybody in the Caribbean supported the war effort everybody in the Caribbean was willing to fight and lay down their life for king and country, because it wasn't true. People were genuinely up in arms about the fact that, you know, say, let's say, as a young Jamaican boy, you were going off to fight in a war where you were being discriminated against in your own country, where the British ruled, because these countries were not independent, they were still colonies, and they had still British governments and people in charge of them, they still answered to the king, Um, and the government, so why should, you know, these young boys go off and fight, lay down their life for a country that won't even give them equality, won't even give them a chance at, like, freedom and independence? Um, However, there was a flip side of that, that people kind of felt like if they went off and supported the war, if they showed that they could contribute to the war effort on a global scale, they would be in a better position for cause of freedom and independence at a later date. And that was a similar kind of narrative and discourse that was happening during World War Two as well. And in World War Two, it kind of became the case because you know in the next like 10 15 20 years after the end of world war 2 is when a lot of the caribbean colonies started to gain independence um, more so because of of britain's like economic obligations that they could not lo- they could no longer fulfill in the caribbean but also um, i think it was kind of a combination of all these different things migrations war efforts and and that kind of thing and so onto the money so approximately 2 million pounds Yes, you heard that right. Was given to Britain by West Indian authorities and charities, along with nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine planes for the Royal Flying Corps and 11 ambulances. Through the Jamaican Agricultural Society, a large number of goods were donated for men on the front lines um, and fighting, including... 3,800 boxes of oranges, 2,700 boxes of grapefruits, chocolate, sugar, cigarettes, clothing, bandages, walking stick, crutches. So, you know, that's just um, some of what was given. But two million pounds given to Britain by West Indian authorities. Now, we're talking about the Caribbean, the West Indies in 1914. Unemployment is high. People are starving, people do not have jobs, people are struggling to feed their families and the Caribbean is giving this amount of money. Now I'll be honest with you, that doesn't sit well with me. I don't know how it sits well if it sits well with you because (laughs) these small little islands didn't pick a fight with Germany, not at all. Um, They were not popular these donations whilst some people and I'll have to say that it's kind of a weird one because Whilst the West Indies and the authorities there are giving this money to Britain, they're kind of part-run by Britain anyway. So is it just Britain giving money to itself? Um, and I'm not sure the ins and outs of that, but that's what's kind of come into my mind. But the Bahamas, for example, the government in Bahamas donated £10,000 um, to the British government for the war effort. And the, a local newspaper argued, and I quote, It seems like madness to vote away so much, which we are more than likely to need for our increasing army of unemployed independents. So, the Bahamas, this local newspaper, they felt it. They understood because, you know, inflation was going on in the Caribbean islands um, as a consequence of war. Because, as an island, you know, you are going to actually be more impacted by war, because you're kind of marooned on your own, if you're not self-sufficient in regards to food, then you are waiting for ships of food to be imported onto your island, and it was more the case definitely in World War II, but um, Germany were laying wait, and bombing the ships that were coming in, with food supplies, with people, and so some of these islands, you know, food became scarce, and rationing had to happen, and so, the, th- the price of food in some places where rationing didn't happen would have just increased. And this was happening in the Caribbean. Because when there's uncertainty um, and the supply, there's a threat to the supply, if you think about the wonderful economic principle of demand and supply. Um, if there's a threat to the supply, the supply falls, uh, demand is you know, staying where it is or increasing, the price has to go up. Um, and so the price of foods was going up wages were low there were probably some industries that might have shut down during the war and so maybe if you uh, were someone at that time one of your only options might have actually been to fight in the war and to get that higher wage um, and to maybe benefit from some tax deductions so you could feed your family so there is a kind of you know whilst people in the West Indies would have been more than willing to serve I think there's a kind of ugly side of the fact that they might f- have felt obliged more so because they couldn't afford not to financially, as well as obviously wanting to and being so patriotic. Now, you know, there were s- really difficult economic conditions in the Caribbean. Following World War I in the um, 20s, early 30s, 1930s that is, Grenada, Jamaica, Trinidad, um, Guyana, they experienced strikes um, and a lot of them were kind of violently put down. Um, Those strikes were labour strikes, they were economic, they were people absolutely fed up of the fact that their wages were not matching inflation, they weren't able to afford a decent standard of living despite the fact they were working so hard, they felt they were being exploited, they were being exploited. Um, And so, you know, obviously they weren't to know that strikes were coming, but to kind of pit that 1920s, 30s kind of you know, political climate and instability based off of um, so much, you know, exploitation and discontent in the Caribbean versus this kind of war effort and this big push and this financial um, expenditure that all of these Caribbean islands were giving, it really does highlight, I think, just... I don't want to say how backwards things were in terms of what was going on, but the real sacrifice that these countries were making, which we don't really think about financially, um and don't get me wrong they weren't the only countries that were donating financially but they're my example for today um so yeah that is just a little taste of of what was happening and that's not everything that was given um and i didn't even go into details of the numbers of people that would have served and might have lost their lives and not every person that supported the war effort was on the front lines um i think that's something we need to think about more not everybody would have been a soldier um, there were munitions factories, there were medical secretaries, there were people doing admin, there were people, you know, recruiting, there were so many roles within a war, um, war brings its own economy, um, and that's why I think some people like it so much, because they're always winners in war, and that's not, I mean, the people that win the war, I mean, all the economies and the kind of services that thrive on war, um, you know, the, is it the uh, military-industrial complex in America? which was kind of more at play during the Cold War, um, you think about how much money certain people were making during that time because of the increase in kind of demand for weapons. Um, Yeah, so on that topic, um, and, you know, the fact that sacrifices were made in more ways than one, in the Caribbean, that is. Um, But just to kind of broaden out this theme and idea of remembrance and how we remember these people now, you know, there's normally a poppy appeal, which is set up by the British Legion, which I read something quite interesting on, on Twitter. Um, the fact that we rely in this country on the British Legion, which is a charity to actually support and look after veterans, um, in this country, veterans of, of wars more recent, as well as ones gone, gone long ago. Um, And it's quite interesting that we do that, considering these charities don't start wars. It's a government. Um, So why doesn't the government look after these people? Um, And so by, you know, supporting the Poppy Appeal um, and wearing a poppy, which obviously is um, more than just the British Legion, I think, at this point, although it's it's them who kind of, like, start up and do the Poppy Appeal every year. um, Are we supporting this idea that a charity should be the ones that are um looking after ex-servicemen I don't know it was food for thought um I'm not sure if I agree or disagree with that but I did want to share kind of an alternative because unfortunately the British Legion weren't fantastic in supporting black ex-servicemen in the kind of windrush years uh, in the 50s um, and the a lot of West Indians actually had to set up their own association to support veterans um and those that needed support with housing after the war in Britain um which is quite interesting and one of the things I came I've seen I've seen a white a white poppy which also symbolizes instead of glorifying war um, which people might argue that the red poppy does um, it symbolizes peace and kind of is a stand calling for peace more so than um, war and kind of you know suggesting that all oh, these wars were kind of right in a way um if i've understood that correctly but another kind of way to support to remember is the black poppy rose um which was launched in september 2010 by someone called selena carty um and it's a symbol that represents contributions made by african people black people caribbean people and pacific islander communities um to various wars since the 16th century and interestingly they aren't just kind of remembering world war one and two they are remembering the Maroon Wars, which we have an episode on, um, a, which has happened a long time ago, um, the Haitian Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars, the Crimean War, which we know Mary Seacole was um, a part of, um, the Italo-Ethiopian Wars, the Anglo-Ashanti Wars, the Anglo-Zulu Wars, the Zosa War, the Boer Wars, um, the Korean War, and of course, World War I and II. Um, and I think it's interesting to go back and remember all these wars, all the way back to kind of the Maroon Wars and the Haitian Revolution, which is, so Haitian revolutions are like 18th century, uh, Maroon Wars in 19th century. So we're taking it really far back with this remembrance, but, you know, celebrating, I think, and remembering black soldiers, um, I don't think it should have had to have been done in a separate way, because surely when we say things like lest we forget and you know let's remember these people it should shouldn't be just white people but unfortunately it has been when we think about war I remember when I was younger in school and we used to do like a lot of stuff about war during this time of the year um and in history I just used to think that oh like it's interesting that black people didn't fight I wonder what they were doing like you know thinking about because people used to say there were kids at school that were like oh my granddad was in this war or my great-granddad was in that war and I used to think oh I wonder if my grandparents did anything like that and in my head I was of course I didn't they're black there were no black soldiers otherwise we would know about them but there were (laughs) and uh, interestingly enough I have family members that were in the RAF and all that stuff but you know we were never to know about them because of the state of history in this country and in in the education system. And so unfortunately it's taken something like the black poppy rose to call out for the remembrance of black people and Pacific Islanders and Asian people and you know, other people that aren't white, which is really sad if you ask me, um, but necessary. So the pins are worn, I will say, um, and this is on their website by anyone who wishes to remember to empower, educate and elevate those who are missing key historical narratives that have assisted in the way the world has been shaped today to assist with the preservation of African slash black history. So it's not left deep inside the archives and to share the history and information with the world. So we continue to assist with healing through our shared history and experiences. And I really like that. Um, I think that's what the history hotline stands for as well in different ways outside of war, (laughs) as well as, you know, when it comes to war. And so I will leave you on those thoughts today. Of the black poppy rose, of white poppies, of red poppies, of remembrance, um, and kind of all the ways you might have traditionally remembered war. Um, maybe spare a thought to how you would like to do that moving forwards in the future. Um, so, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to The History Hotline. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend to tell a friend. To continue the conversation about black history, head over to our social media platforms at The History Hotline on Instagram and at The History HL on Twitter.